Hi, this is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'd like to share with you a recent interview I had with Kirby Anderson on Point of View Radio Talk Show. We're discussing my recent book, Reflection on the Existence of God. I hope you enjoy it. Across America, live, this is Point of View. Kirby Anderson. So often here on Point of View, we talk about how to articulate a biblical worldview, but we also want to teach you how to defend a biblical worldview. And that's why we are going to focus some time and attention on this new book, Reflections on the Existence of God, a series of essays, 10 chapters with a series of essays, anywhere from five to eight essays within a chapter, which help you begin to know how to address some of these issues. And this is a book that you might want to hand to a friend and neighbor, co-worker. It's certainly something you may want to read as well to prepare you and educate you about these very important issues. It's written by Richard Simmons III, who is the founder and executive director of the Center for Executive Leadership that is located in Birmingham, Alabama. He's a graduate of Georgia State, and also we've talked with him in the past about his book, Reliable Truth, The Validity of the Bible in an Age of Skepticism. You may be familiar with some of his other books, Wisdom, Life's Greatest Treasure, The True Measure of a Man, uh, Reason for Life, Why Did God Put Me Here? And so, again, he is an individual that uh, brings a lot of that expertise, has an economics degree from the University of the South, and is joining us now by phone. Richard Simmons, welcome back to Point of View. Uh, thanks, Kirby. It's a real blessing. Real well, it always is. And in some respects, you're writing this because you see that the so-called new atheists are out there trying to, if anything, convince the younger generation as well as even the older generation, about the fact that it's fallacious to believe even in the existence of God. And so what you've put together are ten chapters with a number of short, readable essays to try to address some of the issues that they raise or some of the kinds of questions that you're going to run into if you begin to share your Christian faith, right? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, I really have been working on and researching this book for probably 25 years, uh, while at the same time writing others. But I knew at some point in the future that this book was going to come out. And uh, in the last year or so, you know, it's, it's become quite apparent that atheism is on the rise. In fact, this fall on a, uh, on a, new, a national news program, um, they went to a commercial break, and the ad was promoting atheism. In fact, the spokesperson for the ad was Ronald Reagan's son, Ron, and he ended the interview by saying, I'm a lifelong atheist, and I'm not afraid of burning in hell. And it just struck me very powerfully that here, you know, on our national program, he is um, promoting atheism, or this organization was. And so that and a number of other reasons led to that, but uh, uh, my goal was to write a very well-researched book that would be easy to read because I wanted young people to be able to read it uh, as well as anybody else. And so I think it really appeals to the scholarly. But, you know, just any person could read it, I think, can understand because I think this is such a big issue 
um, not only to confront skeptics, but to enable Christians to be better equipped to go out and engage in the skeptical world that we live in, but even maybe more significantly, because I have three young, young I say they're 23, 22, and 20 uh, children, is that so many young people, when they leave their houses, they leave their faith, they leave the church. In fact, Pew Research did a study on this, and, and they went out and asked all these, these, these young people, why did this happen? What happened to you? What happened to your faith? And so many of them said, um, I had doubts growing up. I had doubts as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I would ask and, and, and maybe sometimes ask about these doubts, and nobody would give me answers. They would say, just, you know, just have faith. And so that wasn't good enough, and it, and it, and it isn't good enough. Um, we do need to give our young people answers because they're not only are there answers, <laughs> they are compelling answers. And so I felt like this is what so many young people need to know. Well, and again, as I go through your book, you're quoting from people that we've had on this program, Nancy Piercy, Doug Groteis, Tim Keller, Ravi Zacharias, the list goes on and on of individuals that uh, you're quoting from. And in some respects, you're really helping us understand that this is kind of the issue of the day, that it may be the most significant issue right now. And um, sometimes churches are equipped to answer these questions. Usually they are not. And oftentimes those questions come from young people who then ask their youth leader. And the youth leader may just be real good at putting on parties and having pizza and uh, really generating a great deal of enthusiasm. But some of these hard intellectual questions do have answers. But if they don't get them in the church, they don't get them at home, then all they have to do is go off to the university, as you well know, and have an atheist professor raise one or two questions, and there goes their faith, right? No, that's exactly what happens. And, I mean, I think a number of parents would would tell you that, and they lament over it, and they don't really know. Uh, I'm sure they have regrets that they did not better equip their children to go off to college, but um, uh, we we just need to do better, without a doubt. And and what you just said I think is important. I, I, this is People say, why is this such an a, a important issue, particularly for our nation, uh, for living this life? Well, clearly your view of God has a huge impact on your worldview, and your worldview is everything because it influences you know what flows out of your life. It's it's the it's kind of the, the lens through which you see life. It's the perspective that you have, and uh, it influences your morals. It imp- it, it, it influences uh, your sense of what's purposeful. You know what's uh, where do you find meaning in life? Um, it's where do you find your source of happiness? Uh, what does your worldview say about death and dying? Uh, these are crucial, and I do love what Tim Keller says. He says, the way you view God, he says, it's the foundation of your thinking, because all of our reasoning proceeds from how we view him. Let's if we can uh, maybe after the break get into a couple of these issues because you have a chapter on the presence of evil, which has always been a perennial question that needs to be addressed. Uh, the moral argument, which is one that certainly Ravi Zacharias has used over the years. Then a whole section on the search for a meaningful life, human experience. Even the psychology of unbelief, we know a lot more about that now. And then we'll get into some of the science issues, the battle with science, 
the whole issue of uh, evolution, uh, theory in crisis, as well as then arguments for the existence of God from the Bible, and then some final reflections. And if you find yourself saying, this is the kind of book I want to read, this is the kind of book I want to put in the hands of my uh, young child, Uh, it might be your child, it might be your grandchild, it might be somebody that you're aware or well of, it's almost 300 pages, and we have information about it on the website. Also, of course, have a link to your website as well. The Center BHAM, which stands for Birmingham. And again, you can find that information on the website. And if you would like to get a copy of the book, we have a link to it, uh, both in hardcover and Kindle. It has been out for many months, so you should be able to find it in your local bookstore. But if you can't, we've made it very easy for you to order as well. So when we come back, we'll take on that uh, really difficult, to kind of the perennial issue that is surfaced so often. If there's a good God, an all-powerful God, an all-powerful God would want to destroy evil, and all loving God would want to destroy evil, but evil's in the world. So how do we address that issue? Then we'll get into some of these other issues that are raised so often by atheists and see if we can come up with some biblical answers. We'll do that right after these important messages. You're listening to Point of View, your listener-supported source for truth. Continue our conversation today with Richard Simmons as we talk about his new book, Reflections on the Existence of God, a series of essays. And this uh, first significant chapter has a number of essays dealing with this issue of evil. So if nothing else, Richard Simmons, let's see if we can talk about that. It is one that is surfaced all the time. It shows up in almost every discussion. It has been around for some time. But how can we, without getting into lots of detail, maybe take a couple of the essays that you have here and begin to at least start to answer some of the questions about how evil could exist if indeed God exists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, what, you, what you just said is correct. Um, in fact... Uh, Ravi Zacharias, who I think probably most of your listeners know passed away recently, um, he he made the comment once. He says, you know, if every time I've been to a college campus and asked to uh, discuss, uh, to uh, look at, discuss, uh, talk about the existence of God, uh, the first thing that comes up is the uh, presence of evil in the world. And, the re- and it's understandable because what they say is, you know, here you have this loving God, and yet you see all this evil all over the world, all over our country. And it just seems to me that, that uh, a, a good and loving God would not have created a world like this. And yet, as Robbie has said, and, and I would agree, a number of, uh, of authors have said this, you know, when someone makes a statement like that, they really haven't thought through this very clearly. Because in order for there to be evil, uh, there has to be a standard of good. That's right. Or a standard of goodness. Um, you know, we all have this sense that people ought to behave a certain way. Well, where does that come from? Um, because when it comes to the issue of morality uh, and, and the, the issue of evil, um, if there is no God, uh, then what really is, what is evil? Um, in fact, I found it interesting that uh, uh, both Charles Darwin and, and, and Nietzsche both said, we should expect there to be evil because we have these inherited animal passions. Um, you know, Hitler made the, the, the point that 
Um, nature is cruel. Why shouldn't I? And so when you start thinking through this and you begin to realize um, what evil is, that there is no evil, if in fact there is no God, then you know the, the, the argument does not make a whole lot of sense. And so the way I look at it, um, and I, 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 I always think about this, and I, I really I think this has meant a lot to me in understanding this, is that you know the, the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials made the argument that we did not we were, what we were doing was not evil. We were just following the laws of the land. You know what we were doing is we, we were just doing what we were told. And I love what um, uh, Robert Jackson, who was uh, really the, he's from the United States, was the the judge that presided over it. He says um, he says that when it comes to the law, he says there is a law above the law. To really understand what true goodness and evil is, you have to have a transcendent law. And basically, that was the basis in which he uh, judged them, and ultimately they were executed. Well, and again, one of the things that connects to this is your next section on morality. And you put the quote from Richard Dawkins there. I could have just as easily put it in the evil section because Richard Dawkins basically says, look, the universe is just a result of blind physical forces. The universe is really what you would expect. There's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. And I want my atheist friends out there and my students who start dabbling with this, because the fastest growing demographic right now for the millennial generation and Generation Z, both Generation Y, Generation Z, the iGen generation, the millennial generation, are those who uh, say they're either atheist, agnostic, or no preference. But just are you willing to live with a worldview that says there is no God, and so we just dance to the music of DNA. DNA is the, you in a sense, you're the way of DNA making more DNA, and there's no human decision, there's no right, there's no wrong. Actually, there's no choice because you're just a biological computer, and in some respects, your chapter on morality helps people see the uh, fallacious nature of saying, what about evil? Oh, i got a better idea. What about morality? What about right and wrong? Because everybody right. has a sense of right and wrong, and where does that come from if all we are evolutionary products? No, that, that is, that, that's very well said, Kirby. Um, you know, ultimately, we either have objective reality, or, excuse me, objective morality, and that has to come from God. He, he is the one that teaches us what's right and wrong. Because if you don't have that, you end up with subjective uh, morality. And if it's subjective, then morality is based on uh, what I feel, uh, my opinion, or as uh, Dawkins says, you know, I, I just dance to my DNA. And what you find is people have a hard time, li- if they really think that they have a hard time living that out um, in fact, Keller says over the years he's noticed that how atheists are not comfortable at all with their view of morality. Sure. In fact, he even said, I'm, this is a quote he said, he said, most of the skeptics I've seen move toward faith later told me that it was around this issue of moral obligation that they first began to wonder whether their views really fit the actual world that they live in. And so that's the, in fact, I would say this, Kirby, uh, as you read through the book, what you're going to see is that, that atheism is one massive contradiction, and it's very difficult uh, to live with a worldview that can't rationally explain 
everyday life and the important issues of life. Well, and again, as you, as you point out there, they can't, uh, they have a view of the world that does not correspond with their own personal needs because people that honestly believe that we're just an evolutionary product then shouldn't be trying to convince you of changing your mind because after all, it's just words and there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no truth, there's no error. And it kind of brings you to the other uh, chapter in your book on the search for meaningful life, because, again, we'll kind of beat up on Richard Dawkins here today, uh, because if the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, then we wouldn't expect anything. At the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who I knew when I was at Yale, uh, came over and spoke to us as well, just, again, basically says that we're just an accident. As a matter of fact, if we could rerun evolution again, human beings might not even show up the second time. And so this is all a result of that. So then trying to find meaning in life, most people get up in the morning, sense that there's supposed to be some meaning for life. But if you are, again, starting from an atheistic point of view, there is no meaning to life other than to survival of the fittest and reproduce yourself, right? That's, that is correct. In fact, before I respond to that, I, I think you would find this interesting, and it's in the book, that Dawkins finally comes around and says, um, you really, when it comes to morals, you can't live by the Darwinian evolution model. No. He says it would, life would be intolerable. Yes. And so, you know, you know, how contradictory is that? He says this is what the truth is, but we can't live, we can't live uh, by the Darwinian model because it, it, it's just so destructive. And so it, it fits right into this issue of, 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 of evil. But going back to the, the search for meaning, uh, to me, this is, is where you're seeing so much. Uh, this has such an influence on modern people. I think we are having a very difficult time living uh, a, a, a meaningful life because if there is no God, then who are we? Why are we here? What is our ultimate destiny? These are the, the big questions of life that are so significant. And atheism has no answer. Who am I? We're just a mass of chemicals. I mean, how grim is that? Um, of course, if, if you have a, a biblical worldview, who, who am I? I am a creature created in the image of God. I am God's workmanship. I have great value. I mean, what a contrast. And then, why am I here? Well, again, if there is no God, I'm not here for any reason. I'm just an accident. Where the bottom line for uh, the Christian is God has put us here for a reason. He put us here for us to know him and have a relationship with him and walk through life with him. Uh, and then when you die, what is our ultimate destiny? Well, if there is no God, I guess you go into everlasting nothingness. And yet, of course, the heart of the biblical worldview in the Scripture is eternal life. You know, John promises that in First John 2.25. He says, this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. So this is a huge issue, and this is why... And I talk about this a good bit in the book. In fact, one of the essays on the, in the section on meaningful life is about the problem that the students at Harvard are having in the credible depression. I mean, right. you know, depression is a major issue in our world today, sure and it's, it's increasing um, quickly and significantly. And I think one of the main reasons is because people live this life, and it's so purposeless because they don't have any foundation uh, to build their lives upon. 
Let's take a break, and we've talked a little bit about uh, the problem of evil and uh, the moral argument and meaningful life. We'll get back and get into the psychology of unbelief, uh, some of the issues of science, but then, of course, conclude by the fact that the Bible does give us answers about Jesus Christ, the resurrection, even prophecies fulfilled in his life, and much more. So it's all part of this book, Reflections on the Existence of God. We'll continue our conversation right after these important messages. Two thousand twenty. It's been a pretty eventful year. We've experienced international tensions over the coronavirus and lockdowns, economic uncertainties, cities overrun by protests, rioting and looters, and coming soon, a presidential election. Question Where will you get real news, credible opinion, clear biblical thinking on the things that matter most? Answer Point of View Radio with Kirby Anderson and the team. You can make sure their voices continue speaking loud and clear by taking a moment right now and joining the Truth Team. It is easy, but you do have to visit our website or make a quick call. Go to pointofview.net slash team or call 800-347-5151. You have the power to make a difference. Joining the Truth Team can help ensure that millions of people will get a different opinion from the major purveyors of fake news. We don't get big advertising dollars like the networks or tax money like PBS. We depend on you. Pointofview.net slash team and 800-347-5151. Point of View will continue after this. You are listening to Point of View. The opinions expressed on Point of View do not necessarily reflect the views of the management or staff of this station. And now, here again, is Kirby Anderson. Continue our conversation with Richard Simmons, again, Executive Director of the Center for Executive Leadership. We have a link to his website, also a link to his Facebook page and a Twitter feed, so you can find all sorts of great information there. And, of course, we have this book, Reflections on the Existence of God, came out uh, late last year, so you should be able to find it in your local bookstore, but we've made it very easy for you to order it as well. And, Richard, we've been talking about uh, some of these issues like uh, evil and the moral argument and a meaningful life and meaning and all the rest. There's another one that you have, and that is the human experience. You know, we have a belief in love. We have beauty. And if that's just an evolutionary product, why are everything so beautiful? Uh, we have an issue of death and dying, the pursuit of happiness. That's kind of a catch-all chapter, but it really does raise some of those kinds of questions, which, again, show the inconsistency between what an evolutionist, an atheist, an agnostic would believe, and yet the feelings that he or she has, either in terms of their own experience or when they perceive beauty in nature, right? Yep. I think this is a critical uh, – I mean, all of them are important because they address all different issues, but this was so eye-opening to me. <clears throat> For instance, um, the issue of love. Um, you know, Viktor Frankl says it's <clears throat> the deepest yearning of the human heart is love, but where does love fit in uh, in a godless world? Well, guys like uh, B.F. Skinner says it's an illusion. We're like machines. We're totally physical. We respond to stimuli. Uh, you know, Daniel Wegner of Harvard says love is the effect of unconscious physical causes. 
And then, of course, Francis Crick says we're nothing but a biological reaction. And so they're saying, think about this. They're saying love does not exist. And so I have to come back to it's difficult to live with that kind of worldview if it can't rationally explain everyday life because we do love. And one of the examples I use is a guy by the name of A.N. Wilson. Wilson was, he's still alive, uh, he's a very famous author, but he was considered, he was going to be the next C.S. Lewis. And, um, and then he shocked the Christian world when, he, when he, he rejected Christianity and to become an atheist. And he was very close friends with Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens. But unfor- and, and he was with them all the way until not long ago he changed his mind again. Yes. And listen, was, this is what's so interesting. He concluded that those people insisted were nothing but anthropoid apes. He says they cannot account for the basic experiences of life, particularly love. And so that is, and, and, and you know, it's also true with beauty. You know, what do we make of beauty in a godless universe? You know, Daw- Dawkins says it's just a kind of a chemical reaction in your brain. And if you think about it, if we're like machines that Skinner says, um, machines can't appreciate beauty, nor can animals. And so <clears throat> this, to me, is speaks very loudly for just the massive contradiction of atheism, because there it really is. There, I don't know how a person could live with that kind of worldview if it can't play, it can't explain your everyday life experience. Well, it also doesn't answer the questions about death and dying, because, again, if you are an atheist, you just believe that uh, when you take your last breath, that's it. You live, you die, yep. you're dirt, you know. Um, yeah, your food... In fact, your, your listeners will really enjoy this chapter because it's amazing in the research. It's amazing the number of atheists who had a, such a difficult time as they approached death. In fact, I even talk about a couple of them that changed their minds. Some people don't even know about it, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre being one of them. Um, but they were terrified of dying. In fact, there's a, a new book out by a guy, a guy by the name of Julian Barnes called Nothing to be Frightened of. He says, I'm embarrassed. Here, I don't believe in God, so you know I shouldn't be afraid of death and dying, but I am. And I think the reason is, there's two reasons. One, I think, because there's uncertainty out there. Uh, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> you know, what, what if these guys are right? But second, I think Kirby, uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11, where it says God has put eternity in our hearts. We, we are eternal beings. We're going to live for eternity. And I think deep down we know it because that's the way God made us. Wow. Again, I'll just keep moving because there's so many good chapters here. And one is the psychology of unbelief. And I wanted to jump to one of your last essays in that chapter because years ago, and this is, goes way back, but since I've been doing this broadcast for more than three decades, we had Dr. Paul Vitz on the program oh, as wow. we talked about his book, The Faith of the Fatherless, The Psychology of Atheism. And you know where we're going because you wrote this uh, essay. And that is he came to this conclusion as a uh, psychiatrist in New York that oftentimes what he found, if you look at the either the biographies or autobiographies of these prominent atheists, they oftentimes had a defective relationship to their father or no father. And we've said this before, Richard Simmons, that uh, if your your earthly father is a problem, sometimes you have a difficulty with your heavenly father. And in that, you really help us understand that there may have been an explanation for why some of these atheists hate God because they actually, or did not believe in God, because they had a bad experience with their own earthly father. 
Well, I think that I think the Vitz's uh, uh, research I think bears that out. Um, you know, I was very fortunate. I, I grew up with a father that I I knew loved me, and we had a great relationship. And I, I truly believe it impacted my the way I, I perceived God and my approach to God. But but you know, in that particular uh, essay, uh, I find this really interesting. Uh, there was an interview performed. Uh, on 350 members of the American Association for the Advancement of Atheism, 350 of their members, 320 of those members that they interviewed were men. Found that interesting. Mm-hmm. And almost every single one of them had lost a parent or had a poor relationship with a parent, and every single one of them reported an unhappy childhood. Now, Vitz, you're you are absolutely right, Vitz. Um, uh, he was basically he wasn't looking for this. He just was studying, and he studied the lives of atheists, and he saw this unbelievable pattern. And uh, so many of them, the, the, the fathers had either died, or maybe abandoned them through divorce, or abused them emotionally or physically. Um, but this is very real. In fact, he even points out that Richard Dawkins and Hitchens both really never saw their fathers, rarely spoke to them because of the age of eight. They were shipped off to boarding school and rarely came home. So this is a very real thing, for sure. I thought and it was interesting. I might add, let me add one more thing. Go ahead. When I, when, I was, when I was researching this, I was talking to a man who had published one of my first books, and we, we were having a conversation, and we were finishing it up. He said, I wish you'd pray for my, grand, my, my two grandsons. I said, what's wrong? He says, they, they both have rejected the faith. They don't believe in God. And so I just asked, I just read this book by Vitz. I said, I'm curious. What kind of relationship do they have with their dad? And he said, they both hate his guts. Mm. It's just amazing. And again, we recognize that there are a lot of listeners right now who had a bad relationship with their earthly father, but they love the heavenly father. So, I mean, you can overcome that. But I thought it was interesting that Paul Vitz went back and even said, okay, when I look at some of the prominent Christians, uh, most of them had a good relationship with their father, but those that did not might have had a father surrogate, which I thought was kind of interesting as well. So it wasn't necessarily always that because they didn't have a father, they headed down the path of atheism. Sometimes there was a father surrogate or somebody that was very positive in their life as well. But we have so often in counseling found that if you had a difficult or even defective relationship with your earthly father, sometimes you portray that on your heavenly father, and that's something to think about, if nothing else. And so just an incredible chapter, but also you talk about in this whole section here what we call willful blindness. You know, we talk about spiritual blindness, but there is a sense in which some individuals are intentionally blind to spiritual truth, and we think they don't understand it. I've found sometimes when you talk to an atheistic young person, they understand it. They just don't like it because they just don't <laughs> want it to affect their worldview or affect their sexuality, right? Right. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was going to say Mortimer Adler, uh, who was w- w- one of the most famous uh, uh, philosophers in the last 50 years, who, by the way, became a Christian at the age of 82, he said this. It was pretty interesting. He says, for many years, I really thought about becoming a Christian. And he claimed to be an atheist up until he was 82. He says, but when it got right down to it, he said, I didn't want to live the Christian life. And so after he became a Christian at age 82, he lived to be 98. And this is all in the book. He says, I began to realize that my rejection of God was not intellectually driven. 
it was basically it was driven by my will. Yes. And I think that is a big, big deal. I think so many people are atheists today, not because of intellectual reasons, but because of an issue of the heart and the will. You know, was it Psalm 14, 1 that says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And real quickly, Francis Collins even acknowledged that that would happen in his own life. Uh, probably the most celebrated scientist in the world who is now a Christian. He said, you know, he said, I came to realize, he got to a point, and I, I, I documented it all in the book, he says, I, I came to a point where I realized in science, I always looked at the evidence and then came to a conclusion. He said, but when it came to issues of faith, he said, I had never looked at any evidence and yet came to these conclusions and, and was an atheist. And so he too realized that, that so often our, our uh, uh, beliefs are not intellectually driven, but they're, they're driven by the heart. We'll be right back. Now, back to Point of View, your listener-supported source for truth. Richard Simmons with us for just a few more minutes. Again, Executive Director of the Center for Executive Leadership. This book is entitled Reflections on the Existence of God, a series of essays. And Richard, I think it would be good to focus our last few minutes on, of course, the fact that even though we're critiquing the atheists, they might say, well, then what evidence do you have for the existence of God? And, of course, that gets us into the historical reliability of the Bible, uh, the historical evidence for Jesus, uh, the impact of Jesus on history, uh, the resurrection, of course, and even messianic prophecies fulfilled in him. And so the evidence for the Christian faith is abundant, and it is something which, as you point out, oftentimes is ignored, not because they've looked at the evidence and rejected it, they just have ignored it in the first place. And so what would we say to uh, an atheist listening right now that says, okay, smart guys, do you have anything that would suggest to you that you have evidence for the existence of God, and how can you prove that to an individual like me who's pretty skeptical? Yeah, in fact, as you say that, I want to throw this in real quick, where I just finished the last segment of your show. Francis Collins goes on to say, now he believes that most of the atheists that he knows today, and there are many, he says they've never looked at the evidence. And as you just say, the evidence is, is very powerful. And the place to start is, is and, and what I did with the book was the first nine sections really point to the existence of God. But if God does exist, what is his name? Who is he? And the bottom line is, and it's, 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 I think this is pretty logical, uh, he will remain unknown unless he comes and reveals himself to us. And clearly, if you think about it, Jesus was the only figure in history to come and claim to be God, uh, I guess you could say the only credible source in history that came and claimed to be God. And that's the thing that most people don't realize. Christianity is a falsifiable religion. It's the only falsifiable religion in the world um, in that the historical um, record is very important in order to prove the validity of, the, of, of, of Christianity. You see, Christian belief is as wonderful as it is, and the teaching of Christ, as wonderful as it is, is meaningless if it's not historically true. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that. He says, you know, if, in fact, Jesus didn't rise from the dead in, you know, as a, as, at a point in time in history, then we're a bunch of fools, and we, we basically will die in our sins. And so we, we put so much at stake on the, 
on the resurrection, but you know the resurrection and all of the the, the teachings of Jesus. Um, you know, when it gets right down to it, you can't prove the resurrection in a scientific lab. You can't prove it in a, a philosophy class. You have to look at history, and the historical record is so powerful. And I talk about the, and a number of people have recognized this. A number of skeptics have recognized. You know, if I can, can can demonstrate that the resurrection never happened, then I can debunk Christianity and it will just fall. And I've, I've listed a bunch of them in the book. Uh, Frank Morrison, um, uh, uh, Gilbert West, uh, there's probably there's six or seven of them, Lee Strobel. They all set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ, and all of them changed their mind and became Christians. Because the evidence for Jesus rising is is so compelling, is so powerful. One of the other arguments that you use is uh, actually a booklet that we've made available, and that is on Messianic prophecies. Because, again, if you look at the Bible, uh, nearly, actually a little bit more than a quarter of the Bible, when written, was prophetic in nature. But yes. in particular, let's look at this, because you have these Old Testament prophecies, which are known to be prophecies about the coming Messiah. And you have a, you know, we have different counts, you know, but more than 50 or 60, some people, if you double count them up to almost 300 prophecies written down in the Old Testament, literally fulfilled in one individual. You have nothing like fulfilled prophecy in any other religious literature. And so that, to me, not only proves, in, I think, to the honest uh, skeptic and the honest searcher, that the Bible is something very unique out of all the rest of literature of antiquity, but also that Jesus himself is unique and actually is who he claimed to be. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the, um, the issue of prophecy, I think, I mean, it, it's, it's, as, it's, I won't say it's as powerful as the, as the resurrection, but it, what you just said is, is spot on uh, to, to realize how old I mean, like Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus comes along, and you read Isaiah 53, and it talks about this suffering servant who will be pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and that our sin is going to fall on him. I mean, that's just incredible. But you know my favorite? There, there's a lot of great prophecies, uh, Kirby. You know my favorite one, though, and I, I, I don't know why, it's just, it's just powerful to me. It's in Isaiah 9-6. It says, you know, a child will be born to us, a son will be given the government will rest on his shoulder, and you will call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mm-hmm. Right there, Isaiah saying that a son is coming into the world, and you will call him Mighty God. That just, I mean, that just does it for me. Yes. Well, again, you've got uh, lives changed by those prophecies. One of the individuals that used to teach a Sunday school class, which I now teach, uh, Barry Leventhal, who uh, was uh, playing. Oh, really? For, yeah, played, uh, of course, for UCLA, Rose Bowl. Uh, one of our former staff members uh, actually remembers seeing him being interviewed and praying for him. So I've got connections to Barry both directly and indirectly. But anyway, you have that story. But we all have these incredible stories of individuals who were marching in one direction and turned around, and uh, whether it's an individual that was a Jewish young boy that was influenced by Messianic prophecy, whether it's the uh, the Chuck Colsons of the world and others, uh, that the changed lives, I think, is another just really powerful testimony to the fact that Christianity is true. 
Well, I can say that that's true uh, in my life and many of the people that I encounter in the world today. One of my very best friends, I mean, he was a drug addict. This was years ago and lost and almost OD'd. And today, here we are, you know, 50 years later, he's one of the most dynamic Christians that I know. And just see how God has transformed his life is just amazing. Let's, if we can, talk about what people will find when they go to your website. We have a link to the center, and that's where you can, of course, find this book, Reflections on the Existence of God, certainly one that a lot of people probably know, The True Measure of a Man, The True Measure of a Man, Prison Edition as well. You have one on wisdom, life's great treasures. And in the past, we've talked about uh, your book, Reliable Truth, The Validity of the Bible in an Age of Skepticism. But uh, talk about what people will find when they land on your website. Well, fortunately, you know, uh, the Center for Executive Leadership has been around 20 years, so we have a lot of material. We have uh, all of my blogs. We have a lot of recorded messages. Um, uh, we have, uh, um, as you say, all the books that I've written. And we, we try to make available, uh, we, we, I think you probably mentioned this, the ministry that we have is focused on men and so we do a lot. We we do a lot, and we focus a lot on men's issues. Uh, I tell people all the time when I'm asked, "Well, why don't you work with women?" And I tell them, "Well, women are a lot healthier than men. Uh, <laughs> we struggle as men. Uh, we have all kind of issues, but we don't really talk about them. We we're good at kind of uh, hiding them from everybody else. And for that reason, so many men are unhealthy. And so we got we have two counselors that work for us. Um, uh, we have a, as you said, we have a a, a prison ministry. Uh, we have a ministry to help fathers, uh, help men father their sons. All sorts of great and we stuff. And just, we just opened up another uh, ministry office in Memphis, Tennessee. So God is really blessing our work. Well, again, you can find all of this on our website, pointofview.net. You can also find his uh, Facebook page, his Twitter post, and the website, and all the rest. So, again, thank you so very much for writing the book, and thank you for joining us today here on Point of View. Uh, Kirby, it was a real honor. I really enjoyed it. And, again, you have been listening to Point of View. Having civil conversations about important issues seems to be harder and harder. Various media outlets tell people what they should believe, why they should be outraged, and getting people to actually think, well, it can be difficult. Whether it's the gospel, tax issues, social policy, or just about anything else, you need to have solid information and clear thinking to address the hard issues. You need God's truth applied. And that's what you get in less than two minutes with Point of View's Viewpoints Commentary, a daily resource to help you be informed and think through the things we need to be talking about. It is free and will arrive in your inbox each day when you visit pointofview.net slash sign up. Sometimes we know we should say something, but we're silent because we're not quite sure what to say. Viewpoints Commentary can help you break the silence and change the narrative. It can make you a more equipped agent for truth. Get your free subscription to the Viewpoints Commentary at pointofview.net slash signup. pointofview.net slash signup. Point of View is produced by Point of View Ministries.
You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.